what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the book of Ezra. If you guys are new here, uh, welcome. My name is Brian, one of the pastors. And uh, we started a series in the book of Ezra several weeks ago, and we are kind of making our way through that still. I want to give you a very fast uh, sort of start by communicating this with regard to the book, what we're going to be looking at here today. is we'll be looking at sort of this larger concept of uh, identity. We'll be taking a look at how the children of Israel that were in the book that we'll look at, we'll give a little bit of a background as to what was happening here in a second, but how they came to a realization as to who they were underneath God. And as a result of that, everything changed. They began to move forward with the work. Um, things started to happen. Uh, God started to really show up in really profound ways. And the work was able to have gotten done. And what I want to say with regard to that is, if you've ever been in ministry, maybe led a Bible study, or maybe have ever even sort of launched out in your own heart saying, you know, that you want to serve God. You want to follow after Him. You want to sort of leave behind your past life and start living for God, you'll probably have discovered already there are occasions, there's going to be seasons when you will feel attacked, people will come against you, uh, they'll question you, they'll criticize you. Uh, if you've ever been in any type of ministry circumstance, you'll discover very quickly everybody has expectations of you, right? Notice that? Have you ever been in that place? Begin to realize people have expectations of you uh, and where you begin to really notice that is when you don't meet those unspoken expectations and you get enough people who are having their expectations not met, they begin to come to you and complain. They criticize, they're frustrated, they throw rocks, they try to grab the wheel out of your hand. And what happens in those seasons is it's very easy to begin to look at yourself and ask good questions, questions like, what do I need to change? Are there areas in my life that I need to conform more into the image of Christ? Are there, is there any validity to the complaints uh, or criticisms that people have against me? And in an effort to try to conform your mind to Christ's likeness and to become different or to change, it's very easy to sort of lose yourself. I'll give you an example. Uh, this, is, this is something that I've even personally, I've struggled with over years. Okay? I've pastored here for 15 years. There are seasons where people will come, people might be frustrated. There's certain things that might not be done in the church the way people want them to be done or certain areas of ministry that just aren't happening the way people want them to happen. Because I'm, a, I'm the pastor, people will come to me and be like, how come we don't have a better you know, ministry here? How come this is not functioning like this? Or how come the coffee is horrible? Or how come, you know, all of these other things. And it's easy to sort of step back and think, ah, oh, I've got to do this. I've got to help them. I've got to take care of this. I've got to change this. I've got to tweak this. I've got to crack it. And it's easy to sort of walk back. And on top of that, you find yourself juggling a million things. And then you begin to realize you're not doing any of them well. What happens, can happen in those moments like that, is it's, it's, you begin to look to other voices, other people, telling you what you should be like, how you should act, especially if you're a young uh, Bible study leader or maybe it's something new. It's easy to like listen to other people and think, I've got to preach or teach or act just like this person. And then you begin to realize there, is, there can be a process where you begin to sort of lose yourself. 
It, it's like walking into a carnival hall of mirrors where you're looking around and this little mirror over here you look at and the reflection you get back says that you're short and fat. Right? This mirror over here you look at says you're, you're very tall and skinny. This mirror over here says that you're upside down. And it's easy to look at these things and sort of begin. And if you stay in this cycle, this routine, you will go mad. You will lose yourself. You will lose the identity of who you are, what you should be, what you were created to be. That's a troubling place to be. I think to some degree this may have been what happened to the children of Israel. And the work of the ministry stopped. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 5, uh, we'll see the prophets, these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they come on the scene and they speak God's word. Lives are changed. Eyes are open. They begin to see God as being great. And everything transforms. Everything's changed now. Now they're back on doing what God called them to do. The work begins to happen. And what happens is the temple ends up being built. All right. I want to say this before we jump in. In a lot of the same way, we as a church, all right, we as a church, we've been here for 15 years. It's been our goal from the very beginning to plant a church in San Luis that reflects God, that reflects God, that demonstrates God, not just by preaching the Word, but by living out the Gospel, by living it out, letting the Gospel have its effect upon our souls, upon our lives, so that what that means is because the Gospel is and has affected us, we think about life differently. We think about our finances differently. Rather than thinking about money as a means to hoard and to buy more things, to constantly go up this status, raising your standard of living. The Gospel actually should speak to us and say, rather than upgrading standard of living with more money you get, it can be an opportunity of upgrading our standard of giving. Not just to the church. I'm not talking about giving more money. I'm not that. But we aren't that type of church. All right? But we're saying when we understand how the gospel affects us, we live in such a way where we see things differently. The family is viewed differently. The role of the dad is viewed differently. Rather than just being standoffish and distant, just simply being a sole breadwinner, and that's about the extent of his job description at home. But the father, his job description now is filled with life, where now he's the priest of the home. He comes into the home lovingly, uh, compassionately, speaks the Word of God into the lives of his children, and loves his wife in such a way where he treasures her and cherishes her in such a way, the way Jesus did the church. And this becomes a model, not just to the kids, but to anybody who has sort of a, a peephole into that family. So that the world looks at the church and says, there's something different about you guys. We were having a little devotion last night with my family, and we were talking about this. One of the churches in Paul's missionary journey, uh, we talked about how when the Christians, the people came to know Christ, their lives were changed. And it was in um, modern-day Turkey. And the majority of people in modern-day Turkey in first-century Christianity, they were slaves. Um, only about 3% were literate. So nobody knew how to read. Only 1% actually knew how to write out of all of ancient, you know, what would have been Turkey or Phrygia is what it was called. 
But there was a group of people that came to know Christ and their lives were changed. And I asked my daughters, I'm like, listen, what do you think it was about the early believers living in Phrygia, right? Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, back in the day where everybody's a slave, 50% of everybody's a slave. Nobody knows how to read. Nobody knows how to write. Everybody's working for somebody else. And it's, it's kind of miserable conditions. What do you think looked different about the believers that separated them from the rest of the people? One of my daughters says, I don't know, I think maybe they were happy. Ha <laughs> bingo. I think you're right. I think there's something about when Christ comes into the heart, changes them, it gives hope. Jesus begins to define. He begins to chisel off old means that had defined them. Jesus becomes the one that gives sort of the identity to his people. Okay. When the church, when we as a body, when we as a group of people begin to recognize who we are in Christ and what the church is about, then the church will begin to do what God means for the church to do. But what happens, I think, in modern-day Christianity, because for the most part the church is not really content with Jesus as being the sole treasure, content with other things, uh, it's like what Paul the Apostle says, they have a power, or they, they, they have a form of godliness, but they deny this power, there's this power that's absent, it's, just, it's not there. But what happens is the church begins to think, you know, we, we, we need something. We need something to give the appearance that we're doing something, that we're alive. And this is where, you know, it's easy to sort of uh, supplement more activity, more doing, more stuff. There's books everywhere you can kind of get your hands on. There's conferences all over the place. I'm being invited to go check out and go to. And, and it's, the bottom line is this is that when the church begins to recognize who we are in Christ and how great our God is, things will change. People will recognize that. Life will begin to go out into the world. So I finish with this little section, and then I'll start my message. <laughs> is, uh, is, uh, as a church, yeah, 10-minute intro, okay? I'm just warming up here, all right? I've just barely begun to sweat. So what happens is... When the church recognizes this, when the church recognizes this, God now has this opportunity to move in a profound way to change things. We want to see San Luis changed. We want to see a Rio Grande. We want to see even Paso, all right? We even love the people over the grade, all right? We do. It's a struggle, but we do, all right? The bottom line is we just want to see Jesus exalted and we want to see a church established in a way that just demonstrates how great our God is to reflect the beauty and the greatness of Christ. All right, I'm going to pray. We'll get to work on the text and hopefully everything I started by saying is going to make some sense as we kind of look at this. Okay? Jesus, we thank you that you have called us together here to gather us here, to listen to you, to hear your word uh, spoken and communicated and expounded and pray again, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, everything that the Spirit would want to speak to us, and I pray at the same time that you would give us hearts that are quick to repent and to respond to anything that you desire to speak to us, modify, to change, chisel away, to make us more in the image of Christ, or to release our grip, our death grip upon things that we think that if we hold on to these things, it will help define us, and yet those things perish. And we perish with them. Lord, we want to have something that defines us that is eternal. So that not only would we find joy, but you would also find glory. So we 
give you this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. All right, so here's what I want to do. If you guys wouldn't mind opening up to the book of Ezra, chapter 5. Um, quick background. I mentioned this over the past few weeks. Uh, the children of Israel, they had been in captivity in the ancient empire of what? Does remember? Babylon, right? Then Babylon became sort of the governed by the Persians, right? And so for how long were they in captivity for? You guys should know this already. Seven years. Good job. All right. And so what happens, it was under the reign of King... Uh, I'm sorry, I should give you more information. That let them go back to Israel. Who's the king? What? No, not Darius. Nope. Cyrus. Cyrus. Good job. Okay, King Cyrus, he's one of the Persian guys. I know it's confusing. you got Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, Ahasuerus. It's hard, all right? I didn't just say a bad word. It's the name of a king. All right, so what you have is you got all these kings, but this guy by the name of Cyrus, he sets them free. He issues his edict, allowing the children of Israel, who had been in captivity for the past 70 years, to go back into their homeland, which is Israel. Uh, Israel had been nothing but a pile of ruins, all right? The walls of the city were destroyed, which was sort of the emblem of their civic power, as well as their temple was destroyed, which was sort of the emblem of the religious power or religious nature or the worship of God. So basically what you have are the people of Israel completely uh, just decimated as a nation. Humbled, destroyed, just ruined. Just ruined. So a group of 50,000 people returned back to the city, ancient city of Jerusalem, to a bunch of ruins with the hope and a desire to essentially rebuild a broken down temple, all right? Uh, the temple of Solomon that had been built had been destroyed. So their hopes were now to rebuild the temple to restore the glory of God in the center of that nation so that that nation would then become changed, that God would be the center of it. That's really what they were hoping for, was that uh, you know, God would be the center of our nation again. They were crying out to God for that, and they were asking God for help. When they began the work, they started by building an altar. They began to uh, offer sacrifices on the altar again. And uh, they had laid the foundation stones for the temple, these huge uh, foundation stones. They had laid them on the ground. So they had the foundations laid, and they had an altar built. And what had happened was around chapter 4, immediately when that had taken place, they had encountered all sorts of opposition. All, right? all sorts of difficulties sort of coming to life. Kind of the same stuff that happens to you if you've ever been somebody that has either gone forward trying to do something for God, or maybe you just recently gave your life to Christ, or maybe you know, you're, you're considering giving your life to Christ, you realize that in moments like that, there can be tremendous opposition that pushes against you. Um, not just simply emotional type stuff where you now begin to deal with, but also sometimes physical type stuff you're going to begin to wrestle with. And that's what was happening with these guys. Um, they were beginning to be pushed back into sort of a state of, you know, should we just let go? Because should we stop doing what we're doing? So by the end of chapter 4, what happens is the work stops. Everything just stops. So for about the next 16 years, nothing's been done. All they had was a, an altar, and all they had were foundation stones for the future of a temple. That's all they had for 16 years. And what happened was during that 16-year period of time, they sort of settled in. 
they began to realize, you know, if we're going to survive here, we've got to plant crops, we're going to survive here, we've got to have nice houses. And uh, I think out of necessity, they started doing all this stuff. And as we mentioned last week, there's nothing wrong with houses. There's nothing wrong with building things. There's nothing wrong with having crops, things that are going to help you live and survive, make sure grandma does well. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But there is a trap that oftentimes the enemy throws out in front of us that those good things can very quickly become sort of snares or traps for us, meaning we end up getting stuck in them. We sort of get stuck in this kind of uh, vortex of we don't know how to get out of it. We're living for the moment. We're living for adding a room addition to the room addition to the room addition. And we're, every time we've got to do something, we've got to add new carpet to it. We've got to put new windows in it. We've got to put new furniture in it. That means more money. It means I've got to work extra hours. It means I'm never going to see my wife. I'm never going to get to play baseball with my kid. And before you know it, you know, your five-year-old kid has graduated from college and you were absent. Why? A lot of times they're just good things. It's good things. Somehow along in that timeline, you've never even stopped for a moment to just think, God, where do you want me to be in this whole thing? How do you want me to serve you in the midst of this whole thing? And that's what was happening. Sixteen years go by. Before they know it, nothing's been done. Temple hasn't been touched. All they've done is they've built big houses. That's all they've done. They've settled in. They've eased into comfort. Really what's happened, in some ways, if I can be a little bit more harsh and more firm or critical with it, is that they basically began to worship the God of comfort over the God of Israel. That's what happened. Comfort became really their God. It became the idol they worshipped. Okay? So what had happened was God, at the beginning of chapter 5, raised up these prophets by the name of Haggai, Zechariah. They come on the scene, and they prophesy, they speak, and as God's word goes out, um, just, you know, the airways are filled with God's word. The people hear it, they respond, they repent, they turn away from the things that they had been putting their hands to. Again, these good things, some of which might have been bad, and they begin to follow after God again. Then they begin to pick up their trowels that were put down. They begin to pick up their hammers that were all rusty. And they begin to start swinging them again and start moving on once again in the work of God, all because the prophets spoke God's word. Their hearts were stirred. They began to move forward again. Okay? That's what was happening here. So I want to pick it up basically around chapter 5. We're going to pick it up around verse 1. I'm going to start from there. Kind of cock the gun a little bit. Then we'll kind of jump out into verse 3, which is where we'll basically kind of teach from but um, verse 1 says this. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatel, he was sort of like the uh, governor of Israel. He was kind of like the kingly uh, picture. He was the guy that was sort of the leader over this whole group of people. And then Joshua, the son of Josadak, he was the high priest. So one guy represented sort of civil authority. The other guy represented religious authority and leadership. And they began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So we looked at this last week. It's kind of an interesting foreshadow. You've got uh, prophet, priest, and king, really all working together in cooperation to rebuild the temple. And and I think in a lot of ways it's sort of a prophetic uh, foreshadowing of Jesus, who would one day come, he is the prophet, the priest, and the king, all in one, who is rebuilding, or building, I should say, a new temple. He is building the kingdom of God. He's using you and I as little stones, one built upon the next. He's building this temple for himself, 
He's the main thing. Okay? So what happens in about verse 3, it says, At that time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river of uh, Shether Bozani, and their associates came to them, and they spoke to them thus, Who gave you the decree to build this house and to finish the structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of God, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So here's what happens. These guys basically are approached by this guy, Shether Bozani, all right, some official guy. He was sort of uh, the representative, I would imagine, of the Persian interest abroad, right? Um, and his job was to basically make sure everything was sort of uh, in submission to Persia. If there was any hint or any sense of potential uprising or any type of uh, work that's going to be raised up to be anti-Persia. It was his job to alert the officials back in Persia so that troops, armies, whatever, can come back into the, whatever territory it is and make, make sure that they uh, destroy any type of uprising or um, things of that nature. So he comes to the religious leaders, the Jews, and Zerubbabel and basically asks him, who gave you guys the permission to do this? Um, who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? What are the names of the people? We're taking names. Uh, give us names. We're going to turn you in. We're putting up an official report. We're going to be sending this report back to Persia because we don't think that you guys have the authority to be doing this. Because, again, nothing's been done for 16 years. All right? Everything's been just stopped. And all of a sudden, you can imagine, if, you're like, if your job is to work for the Persian emperor, you're on the payroll, and all of a sudden you realize after you know, 16 years, you know, every time you go off for a walk in the morning, Nobody's doing anything in the Temple Mount right, for 16 years, for as long as you can remember, as long as you've been employed by Persia. And then one morning, all of a sudden, you begin to realize there's like 20,000, 30,000 Jews swinging hammers, hauling bricks, and sort of working hard, singing songs, doing stuff. Immediately, you're going to think, wait a minute, do they have permits for this? All right, like, I'm the permit king. You know, so they go out and they start asking, where's permits? Do you guys have the right to do this? And who do you think you are, by the way? So here's what happens is in terms of the response. So he's basically going to write this letter to send them out or to send out to the king. But it tells us in about verse 5, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. Meaning what's going to happen now is that they're not going to be able to be forced to stop over the next few weeks. And what would take place next is this particular guy, whoever he was, he was kind of the delivery boy. He would take this letter, this official document, and take it back to Persia. Now, it's interesting because we've found sort of through archaeology, there was a very advanced um, highway system all the way from Persia that went through, um, you know, Persia's modern-day sort of uh, Iran, all the way through Babylon, modern-day Iraq, all the way up through um, kind of where the Kurd territory is, through Turkey, all the way down. Very uh, high-tech type of a road that they used back then. So this probably would have been the way that would, it would have taken about two weeks on horseback, so this guy, as soon as he got this letter, he would take in this letter all the way back by horseback um, on this road system all the way back to Persia, gotten a response, come back. So the whole thing probably would have taken about a month, month and a half maybe of time before information would have gotten back to tell them, yes, these guys are legit, or no, the Jews need to stop. But we're told in the text, hey, God gave us favor. We didn't have to stop. It was great. We got to keep working. That's what happens. So I love this. In verse 6 it says this, Then a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river of Shether Bozani, 
and his associates and the governors who were in the province beyond the river sent to Darius the king. They sent to him a report in which, the, in which, in which was written as follows. Okay, here's the letter. To Darius, the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, and uh, it was being built with huge stones and timber laid in the walls, and the work goes on diligently, and it prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders, and we spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure. And we also asked them their names and for information, and that we would write down their names of the leaders. And this was their reply. I love this. You guys got to just, you guys listen. This is amazing to me, okay? So again, I want you to picture this. Here you are, you're a Jew. You just got finished listening to the prophet Haggai and Zechariah. You just got finished repenting from being so caught up in yourself that now you finally caught a glimpse, a vision of who God is, how great God is, and how God is with you. Now you begin to pick up your hammer and start working again. All of a sudden, immediately while you start swinging your hammer, this guy Shether Bozenai comes out. He's like, who are you? What are you doing? Don't you know who I am? I represent Persian interests, and this is not Persian interests. What are you doing? You need to stop. And what are, you, what are you out here doing this for? And this is the reply. I love this. Because I, I think about it this way. If, if, if you were ever approached by somebody, let's say you're out sharing the gospel, let's say you're on the job, and for some reason you just, you know, hopefully not while you're working, maybe you're on break, right? You're working, and you're out sharing the gospel, you might want to repent. And then what happens is maybe on break you're sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus, all right? And, and somebody comes up, who do you think you are? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? All right? Most of us, I think, would just like flee. Like, ah, nothing. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. Some of you, right, depending upon personality, might go ninja on them, get a little bit upset, right? Hopefully you don't do that. It's not a good example. Some of us would just prefer to pull back. But here's what I love these guys' response was. They come right out, and here's what they say. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. He says, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which the great king of Israel built and finished. So here's what they're saying. You guys want to know who we are? We're just simply servants of a very great God. I love this. It's like somehow through the prophetic utterances of Haggai and Zechariah, these guys just got it. Their eyes were open. Their hearts were stirred. Everything was put in its proper perspective. Here's what takes place. Around verse uh, 12, it says, But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So they're basically recanting a little bit of the history that we've been going through. King of Babylon, uh, the Chaldean, who destroyed the house and carried away the people of Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that the house of God should be rebuilt and the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken or stolen out of the temple, that was in Jerusalem, brought into the temple in Babylon. It says, These Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered, one, to a guy by the name of Sheshbazar, who he had made governor. So there's been a lot of speculation, who's Sheshbazar, Sheshbazar, and uh, you know, a lot of commentators have kind of given their input. Some people actually think it's Zerubbabel. It's very possible. Is uh, this battery dying on here? No, it's good. I heard myself buzz. 
Um, some people think this guy was probably a, another name for Zerubbabel. I think that's probably the case. That's my personal opinion on it. A lot of times you can remember a lot of the Jews would have their names changed from their Hebrew names to a Babylonian name or a Persian name. The same was with Daniel. I think Daniel's name was Belteshazzar, I think. Could be wrong. Is that right? All right. I was right. All right. Huh. All right. I feel good. All right. Yeah. So you can remember all these guys had their names changed. And uh, so it's very likely that's exactly what happened. Sorry about that. That's probably exactly what happened with this guy named Zerubbabel. Was, this could have been his name. He was the governor, sort of the guy that was uh, the leader of this whole uh, new movement to go and restore and rebuild uh, the temple there in Judea. In verse 15 it says, And then he said to him, Take these vessels, go, and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came, and he laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now, it, was being, it has, been built, has been being built and is not yet finished. Verse 17, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let, each be, let, let a search be made in the royal archives where Babylon is and see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this manner. So in other words... Uh, my recommendation to the king of Persia, do some research, find out whether or not this stuff is really true that we're being told. If it is, send us word back. We'll stay away. If it's not, let us know too. We'll be sure to stop it. All right? So that's what's happening. That's what's taking place in it. But one of the things that just really blows my mind with regard to these guys' boldness, again, this group of Jews that had essentially started out this ministry, this work, 50,000 people, to begin to build the temple was just this boldness that they had. There's something about that that's just amazing. So what I want to focus on now is just kind of look at that one little section in that one little tiny verse at around verse 11 where it basically when they reply, they essentially say, listen, this is who we are. We are servants of the God, heaven, and earth. You want to know who we are? Want to know why, why we're out here? Want to know why we're doing what we're doing? If there's any question whatsoever in your mind, here's the answer. So I want you to, first of all, take a look at that phrase or that word, we are the servants. Um, I want to kind of give you the Hebrew uh, of that particular word. The, the word that's used specifically in this particular passage that's translated um, servants is the uh, Hebrew word abad. There's actually another Hebrew word that's uh, very similarly linked. It's almost the exact same word, just a couple different um, vowels that are used in it. And it's actually the uh, Hebrew word ibed. And that word combined with Abad, appear around 750 times. Why am I telling you this? Because I think it's really important to kind of note in the text. There's something that happened in these people's hearts that changed. It changed the way they saw themselves. It changed the way they saw their ministry. It changed the way they saw their lives. Because from the preaching of the messages of Haggai and Zechariah, something changed them, whereby they went from just being identified or just seeing themselves as dwellers in a foreign land, building houses, raising families, taking care of grandma, having crops, building bigger houses, and on and on and on goes the cycle. Everything changed whereby now, by the work of the Spirit of God, they began to see themselves differently. They saw themselves as Ibed, servants of God. And when pushed, who do you think you are? This is all we think we are. We're just, you bad, servants. Nothing great, but we're servants of God. 
this word is really loaded. I want to give you a little bit of a background history in this word. Um, the first time this particular word appears is in Genesis chapter 2. I think it's significant because uh, if you're familiar with the timeline here in Genesis, this is before the actual fall of mankind. When man sins, this is before the fall. So here's how the word appears. The first time it appears in the Bible. The Lord God, in uh, Genesis 2, 5, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to ebed the ground. So I was looking out, saying, amazing creation. It's beautiful. Amazing earth. Amazing planets. Amazing microorganisms. Amazing trees. Everything's perfect. God says, only thing is, there's nobody, no man, to ebed, to serve, to work. The word serve that's used there, it's kind of an interesting word. It's, it's, it can be a very broad word. In fact, the word ebed can oftentimes even be translated worship. It can be translated as toil or toiling. I'll give you an example of it. It's sort of a junk drawer term. I'll give you an example. If you toil or work for somebody, you would be a worker, right? A worker. If you were somebody that worshipped somebody else or some god, you would be a worshiper. If you did something for somebody else, you would be a doer, right? Is all making sense? So, a doer, worshiper, worker, toiler, sower, whatever you want to put it. It's a juncture. The word for that is ebed. That's, that's who, you are a servant. It's the very broad stroke term to encompass a lot of things. God says, creation's beautiful, but there's no one to serve it, to embed it, to toil it, to work it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says this, And the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to embed it, to work it. God says, I'm going to create man, I'm going to put man in this unbelievable paradise, and he will be responsible to serve it, to take care of it, to tend it, to help the plants grow, whatever that meant, whatever that meant. I don't know what exactly what that meant, but it was just meant take care of it, all right? Uh, the next time this appears sort of in the timeline, again, this is the first, second, and then the third time this word actually appears in the, uh, in the Bible. Okay, the next time that it appears is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. And what's taken place in Genesis chapter 3, just a little bit earlier, man sins, they partake of the fruit that God said don't partake of. Man makes a, a decision, a choice to disregard God's command as a result of that. Uh, he's taken matters into his own hands. Um, he's created a, an eternal offense. And God now is pronouncing this curse upon him. And here's what he says. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life to eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground. So God's saying, listen, man used to work the ground in Eden before the fall. After the fall, man will continue to work the ground. He will continue to be a servant. The only thing that will be different from now on, his service will be full of toil. So God pronounces this curse. So rather than just simply working and dropping seed in the ground and getting beautiful plants and fruits and vegetables, right, just in due season, what happens now, if you've discovered this, you work hard, and you end up getting weeds. All right? Have you noticed this? I mean, have you guys lived this? Have you experienced this? That the world that we live in does not always conform to our every desire. All right? Now, if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
right? You know, you're just like, I, tr- I don't get it. I always tell them to tell the truth, and they don't, all right? Or if, you know, this time of year, my wife finally just, partly because my, my, my lawnmower is broken, but the other part, my wife just like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call the dude to come out and do our grass. That was great. Our grass came out. And literally like three days later, all these weeds started growing out again. Three days later, all right? You can work hard, and then in just a moment, weeds come back out. Everything becomes sort of full of just toil and labor, the things that we work hard for, the things that we put our energy towards, the things that we give our minds over to, don't always go the way that we hope or wish that they would go. In other words, they work against us. You know what I'm talking about? Have you noticed that? We can work very diligently, very hard, make a lot of money. What happens is we end up at the end of the day, we begin to realize, what happened to all the money? What happened to all this, you know, hard work that I invested my time, energy into, it's just it's left to nothing. So here's what's taking place. God's saying, listen, I created you to be my servants, to be my bed. Instead, you made a choice where rather than serving me, rather than looking to me as your ultimate treasure, you placed yourself in that. You became sort of an independent contractor and you began to put yourself your own interest ahead of my interests. And as a result of that, you will continue to labor, but what will happen now is your labor will be toilsome, your service will be difficult, and what will happen from time to time, probably more often than not, the very things that you think that you're serving will end up becoming your master. The things that you, that, that are, that you think are serving you, the things that you think you have control over, will end up at some point controlling you. This, the, the most extreme example of this is somebody that starts out doing drugs. All right? Nobody ever starts out saying, I really want to be deeply addicted to crank. I really want that. Nobody does. Everybody starts out just maybe a little bit of alcohol, maybe a little bit of weed. Everything sort of progresses. There's next steps you move to. It goes higher and higher. What happens at the very center of it all is this mentality. I mean, if you strip everything away... At the very core of it is this mentality that says, I want to be happy. I want to be defined. I want to have an identity. I want to be joyful. I want something that will satisfy me. And it's different for everybody. It's different for everybody. Some of it might be drugs. Some of it might be sex. Some of it might be, you know, your work. Your work is your God. You work really hard. Really hard. So much so that you don't have time to devote to your family, to your kids. That has become your God. But at the very core, if you strip everything down back to its bare minimum foundation, at the bottom of it all, is this desire that says, I want an identity. I want to be recognized. I want to feel important. I want joy. I want something there. And in the garden... God says, I'll give you your identity. I'll be your joy. Do what I say. Be my servant. Adam made a decision, along with his wife Eve, to not have God as ultimate, but to have self as ultimate. And as a result, they continue to be servants, except their servanthood now moved into stuff that actually brings about defilement in their soul. Their servanthood now has led them to toil, 
It's led them to difficulty. It's hard. It's hard being human, right? And that's what's happened here. Check this out. What takes place next will blow your mind because God looks at the whole of humanity and says all of humanity is a group of Ebeds. They're servants. But they serve the wrong gods. They serve themselves. They serve, they work hard for things that don't satisfy. They work hard for things that don't fill them up. They work hard for things that leave them defiled. They work hard for things that leave them feeling bad about themselves, bad at the end of the day, hurting other people, wounding other people, sometimes even defiling other people. That's why what happens with a porn addiction, it's not docile, guys, gals. It doesn't just affect you, it affects other people. It affects the way you think about other people of the opposite sex or of the same sex. It affects the way that you perceive people. If you're married, it will affect your sex life in your marriage. It affects everything, bringing up defilement. It is all about what we serve. It's the root thing. But here's what God does. is He sees humanity and He says, you guys are slaves to these things. You are slaves to yourselves rather than being slaves to God. Being a servant is not a bad thing. It all depends upon who your master is. This is why Jesus says, if you serve me, you will be satisfied. Why? Because God is a very good master. Do you know that God works for your joy? No other master does that. No other master. The things that we set out when we think, this will work for my joy, hardly ever fulfills the promises it starts out with. And yet God's the only master that says, I have come to bring joy to you. So here's what he does. Check it out, the very next verse. In the New Testament, that word servant um, is actually taken from an Old Testament verse in the Hebrew. And the actual Hebrew word that's used there, which is a description of Jesus, is found in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. But it's quoted in uh, Matthew chapter 12. It says this, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, or liberty to the Gentiles, or freedom to the Gentiles. Freedom from what? Freedom from the things which bondage them. Freedom from the things that enslave them. So how does God do this? What's the means by which God sets those people free from their bondage? Here's what happens. It's unbelievable. God says, I will become just like one of them. A slave, a servant. But rather than to sin, I will be in a physical body a servant to the living God. Jesus comes into this world, ironically enough, never sins. He's tempted, but never sins. He defeats the enemy. Right? When he's tempted in the wilderness, Satan says, you know, all you got to do is turn rocks into bread. Right? Start a business. Rocks into bread. Jesus says, no. I'm not going to put myself first. I will do whatever the Father tells me. The Father hasn't told me to do that. Get out of here. That's the whole point. It's Jesus' way of saying, I will fulfill, I will do what Adam didn't do. Here's what happens. He does this all the way up to the cross. In submission to the Father, He dies on the cross in your place, in my place. He takes the penalty, which was an offense. 
You see, it's an offense for us as human beings to say, God, my way is actually better than your way. Right? Funny thing is, is you know, as adults, we have a hard time with that. Sometimes we're like, ah, it's so arrogant of God to say that. Unless you're a parent. Right? If you have a kid, let's say they're around five years old, six years old, right? They can think a little bit now. Right? And you tell your kid, you're like, listen, here's the deal. All right, you get your bedroom cleaned, and uh, we'll go downtown. Powell's is a brand new candy shop downtown. And we'll get you some candy. All right? Here's, that's how, this, how we'll, this will work. They're like, mm, you know, Mom, I like the candy thing, but I'm not really too into the clean the bedroom thing. So how about we just get rid of the clean the bedroom thing, and uh, let's negotiate here. No parent's going to be like, okay, now how about this? How about you clean the pool instead? No cleaning the bedroom. And we could... There's no negotiating. Like, if the kid's like, you know, Mom, I don't really like your idea, parent will just be like, all right, no problems then. I mean, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this. I'm not going to give you anything. I'm not going to reward you for defiance. The funny thing is we have a really hard time understanding that, especially when it's in the context of God, our Creator, and us as human beings. But it's very similar to that illustration of a parent and a kid. God just says, listen, I, I'm working for your joy. Everything I call you to do to follow me is really to, meant to give you life. Not to destroy you or to strip you from life. But we just don't see it as that. The problem is that we just don't see God as good. See, fundamentally, at the core of it all, we just don't see God as good. We have not been convinced of His goodness. Therefore, we take matters in our own hands. Apart from a miracle of grace, this is what happened in chapter 5, verse 1, preaching the Word goes forth, eyes are opened, ears hear, and they begin to see, wait a minute, God is good. God is for us. Everything changes. They saw themselves and their identity not caught up in what we need to do for ourselves, to build for ourselves, to make for ourselves, they weren't looking at the identity of their lives solely wrapped up in how they lived, but rather in who God is. That's what happens. That's what Jesus did in coming into this earth. The next thing I notice in terms of this phrase is they say, listen, we are servants of the God of heaven and earth. I love this phrase because really what they're basically signifying in this is that our God is not just some tribal deity. Okay, that's what they're saying. You know, I mean, there were gods all over. I mean, everybody in the ancient world had a god, right? You know that? They, they weren't atheists. It wasn't, like, cool, you know, to put big slogans on the side of buses back then. They didn't have that back then, all right? Everybody had a god. Everybody worshipped somebody. But here's what they're saying. Our god is not a tribal deity. He's not a god that's carved out of some jade or statue or something that has eyes but can't see, ears that can't hear. Our god is actually the creator of heaven and earth. That's our God. That's our God. And we serve Him. We are servants of this God. And therefore, we can't stop what we're doing because God's called us to do this. So I want to ask and wrap this up and basically ask a couple questions. How does this affect individuals? How does this affect individuals? This concept of identity, who we are, how does this work? Well, I'll give you an example. I think Jesus had a great story. It's um, really the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you guys are familiar with it. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 15, why don't you check it out real fast, Luke chapter 15. I'll just read it to you very fast. Luke 15, the story. Jesus is trying to illustrate some important uh, spiritual truths. 
And he says this concerning a, a father who had a son. His son goes away, very uh, far distance. He's been given uh, as a, his inheritance. Uh, the father's very generous, very gracious, very kind. Uh, the kid's got an older brother. And uh, the father basically says, I'll give you the inheritance. You ask for it, I'll give it to you. Go ahead, take it. What happens is the next day, the kid packs up his bags and bails. He's gone. And what takes place over the next few days, next few weeks, he's out and he spends all of his inheritance, wastes all of his money, and it comes to the point where he ends up working, serving pigs. I mean, this is the irony of the whole story. At first, he's a son in a great house under an amazing father who's deeply gracious. Next moment, he's now serving swine. If you're, if you, there's a lot of irony in the story. Jesus is Jewish. He's speaking to Jewish audiences. And when you say that this kid ends up working for swine, right? Jews don't like pigs, right? Jews hate pigs. And that's unfortunate. Bacon is a real blessing from God. But what happens is that these people begin to realize this guy has squandered everything that God had given to him. And he becomes so low in the whole social economic system, he finds himself a servant of pigs. Check this out. I love this verse. In verse 17, penniless, almost jobless. It says in verse 17, but then came to himself. Then he came to himself. It's like this light bulb went off. Wait a minute. What am I doing here? I have an amazing father. He's a good father. He's given me everything that I have. I'm the one to blame. I've squandered everything. I've trashed his name. I've destroyed his name. I've taken for granted his blessings. Comes to himself. All of a sudden, here's what he goes on to say. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat? He says, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And I am no longer even worthy to be called your son. Instead, I want you to treat me like one of your hired servants. And the story is, he ends up running home. His father falls down on his knees in front of him, throws a big coat around him. And the son's basically like, Dad, I, I don't deserve to even become a, be your son anymore. How about you just make me your slave? your servant. And the father says, you're speaking foolishness. You have always been my son. You will always be my son. Here, here's a robe. Here's a ring. Here's some nice shoes. Here's a fatted calf. Let's eat barbecue tonight. We're celebrating. You're home. You were once lost. Now you're found. He lost his identity. Some of you are trying really hard to make an identity for yourself. This is why you expend the amount of energy you do, making the money you make, spending the money you spend on clothing, the types of stuff you spend your time on, the things that you read, the things that we give our energies towards, the careers you find yourself pursuing, the types of cars you drive, the types of houses you build, is because somehow, someway, you've bought this lie that says these will increase your stature. These will make you better. These will increase you. These will make people think you are somebody important. And the lie that we believe is we actually think that is true. And at the center of it is a very prideful person that just says, I'll make my own decisions. 
I don't need God to define it. That is the heart of sin. That God says, I've come to set you free from. You don't need to be a slave to everything, let alone yourself. This is why Jesus would say stuff like this. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Right? He's speaking to a bunch of people that felt, I mean, they tangibly felt the sense of slavery. They felt the bondage of Rome. They lived yearly with the understanding that their heritage came from the bondage of Egypt. Every year they celebrated Passover as a constant reminder. We were slaves. Jesus says to this group of people, says, listen, you guys, you know what it's like to work hard and be under intense pressure and bondage. Come to me. I'll set you free. Jesus would say stuff like this. He whom the Son sets free is free. Paul's message when he went around the Roman Empire preaching to slaves, he would say, Jesus will set you free. The servant of God will set you free. That is the Gospel, my friends. That's the good news. That Jesus will set you free. That for sure warrants kind of an amen. Alright? And that's completely okay. We can do that. But the point that I'm making is that that's what happens. It is the Gospel that will set you free free, not to an identity whereby you look at yourself in the mirror and think, "Mm, aren't I great? I'm a child. No, it's where your identity now becomes caught up in Jesus's. Here's how Paul puts this in Ephesians chapter 2. I want to finish with this. He says this. I'll read it. Why don't you guys turn there real quick? Let's all read it together. Great verse. We have the worship team come up. We'll finish up here. All right? Ephesians 2 says this. In you, Paul's talking to believers, you were dead in trespasses and sins. In you, in which you once used to walk, you followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is at now work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once lived according to the passions of your soul. You carried out the desires of your body and the mind. You are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in in our trespasses, He made us alive together in Christ. By grace you've been saved, and you were raised up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not in your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that you would boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In this verse, it's just this unbelievably clear statement that really, in this world today, there's only two identities that God's looked at. The one identity is He says, our children of wrath people that have walked according to the course of this world, people that have lived for the pursuits of their own passions and their own hearts, completely independent of the life of God. And he says, by nature, these people are, are children of wrath. That is what defines them. The reality is, guys, as profound as it really is, there will be one day where we will stand before God and we will give an account. Okay? The reality is this. And 
to live for the pursuits of this world will one day, standing before this unbelievably, immeasurably great God who created the heavens and the earth, will seem like absolute nothing. Can you imagine standing for God and being like, God, I'm great. 16 golds in the Olympics. God's like, oh yeah? I'll top you. The universe. I made it all. Snap my finger and it was done. It doesn't impress me. The things that we so oftentimes put our hands to and we think, this will give me some sort of identity. God just looks at it and says, it's, it's trash compared to the treasure that's in me. And guys, I, I want you to hear this and I finish on this. Is the gospel is about God giving us Himself. It's saying your life is now in me. There's joy in me. There's help in me. There's strength in me. There's identity in me. And when the church recognizes this, look out, world. Look out. When the church recognizes, you know what? It, it's not about the type of car I drive. God is not impressed with that. Others might be, but God's not. It's about me recognizing in Christ I'm a new creation. And I have a very, very great God who has given Himself to me as the treasure. When you have that, you can't help but live in a way that just communicates the rest of the world around us the greatness of that God. That's where I want for us to be as a church, guys. We're going to partake in communion. We're going to worship. We're going to respond. We'll give our tithes and our offerings. If you're here and you're not a Christian, please don't partake of communion. Communion is a special interaction that happens between those who love Jesus and Christ. Whereby we partake of the bread, drink the cup, and we remember what God did for us in Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you want to give your life to Christ, just confess your sin to Him. All right, that's it. All you got to do, just ask God to forgive you. Wash you, cleanse you, take away your defilement. He does that. We're going to worship, all right? I encourage you guys. We've got a great God. I mean, I don't want to end on a real sober tune. We've got a great God, all right? He really is a great God. It's okay to clap hands and get excited and be really pumped. I mean, it's all right. So I encourage you guys. Let's worship Him. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We love you give to you our hearts. We want to be reminded, really, that our identity is found in you. And from that identity, we want to be who you've called us to be, to move forward as a church, demonstrating, showing forth your greatness.